platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. The Bund Summit takes center stage in the global financial hub of Shanghai, underscoring China's growing influence in international finance. But we still need to work towards kind of all-inclusive international system. Amid challenges faced in a year of global economic slowdown, how can we reinvigorate international cooperation and multilateralism in the face of mounting economic fragmentation? I have a kind of a framework to answer this. Basically, I'm calling it constructive incrementalism. Looking ahead, financial regulations, investment strategies, and the energy transition remain core issues of the global economy. How will China continue to be a catalyst of growth for regional and global prosperity? We uh, all of our regional integration has been based on multilateral principles. In a time of global economic uncertainty, we'll discover how economies can forge a sturdier path to rejuvenate multilateralism and restore faith in international cooperation. Only on BizTalk. And welcome, everyone, to Bund Econ Talk, a very special edition of BizTalk. I'm Michael Wong. We are at the fifth Bund Summit here in Shanghai. The theme of this year's summit is China and the World: A New Journey, where some of the world's top minds in economics, in finance, and development have gathered in Shanghai to talk about how do we build more consensus, how do we promote more cooperation, and how do we foster a more open and sustainable global economy. Elements that are much needed as we see the rising risks of economic fragmentation really jeopardizing the decades of peace. Prosperity and stability that we have witnessed as an international community. So, to talk more about the future of the global economy and China's role in that future economy, I'm pleased to be joined at this Econ Talk roundtable by Mari Pangestu, who is professor of international economics at the University of Indonesia and also the World Bank's former managing director of development policy and partnerships. We're also joined by Dean Yao Yang, Dean at the National School of Development at Peking University. So, thank you to you both for joining us on the program.、Uh, I want to start with a very big and very broad question, because we are talking about perhaps how do we boost multilateralism and global cooperation at this, at this year's Bund Summit? How concerned are you about the rising risks of global economic fragmentation? And I'm just thinking to one example right now. The Paris Climate Agreements of 2016. I'm not too sure the international community can really come to a consensus on that in this day and age. So, as we stand right now in 2023, how concerned are you about economic fragmentation, Professor Pankestu? Let me start with you first.、Uh, I'm very concerned、uh, as someone who has sort of grown up in the last three decades、uh, with multilateralism and seen. The importance of multilateralism for development, and I think in, in East Asia, China, Southeast Asia, and the rest of East Asia, we have seen how openness in trade, investment,、uh, financial capital has really、uh, boosted growth and development and reduced poverty.、Mm. But all that is really now being put in question. You you mentioned climate, but I think we are already seeing、uh, fragmentation on on trade. Uh, starting even before this current、uh, escalation of the U.S.-China trade war, this is the big question for us in this forum: How should we proceed with multilateralism, given that situation? 
and the escalation of the bilateral tensions and the geopolitics. Mm. So uh, uh, do, to me, the answer should be the rest of the world should continue. <laughs> and I, I, I have a kind of a framework to answer this, if I may. Basically, I'm calling it uh, constructive incrementalism. <laughs> it, what does it mean? First, it means we should continue to uh, uh, preserve the multilateral uh, order and system that exists already. It's not about overhauling the system. Mm. It's there. Let's continue to strengthen it. In the trade world, it would mean making sure uh, things in the WTO continue to move. Reforms in the WTO, uh, however small, continues. Dialogue continues in the multilateral sense. And if you can't get 150 countries to agree, you go plurilateral, which means a subset of countries can continue on different parts of the agenda, like they are doing now with services and digital. Second, regional. Uh, so countries with different groupings and like-minded countries can continue on different issues and continue on many other fronts. And this is why regional economic integration should continue, should uh, proceed. And middle powers like the EU and Japan they, and, and ASEAN, we need to continue to uh, make sure openness continues not just in trade, but in all areas, but it should be transparent and inclusive. Mm. Inclusive is the hardest part <laughs> to, to, to achieve. And it already has happened, actually, since the exit of uh, the U.S. from the multilateral trading system. That sounds like a pretty tall order, uh, Professor. Yes. Uh, Yao, <laughs> what do you think? Your concerns about economic fragmentation. And now we're talking about the potential risks of economic fragmentation in a world where we are so interconnected. So do we know how to do that as an international community, how to resolve these kind of challenges when we're so interconnected? What are your right. thoughts? Right. China has been, become so big and in a sense, uh, has become a challenger to the United States in many fronts. Uh, so the uh, United States uh, believe the current system is not working toward American interests. I mean, uh, to a natural extent, I can understand the American stance, right? If uh, the current system is against me, why should I invest a lot of efforts right, into the system? Okay. Uh, particularly, not just because of China, but also particularly the changes happening in the United States. Okay. Uh, the enlarging income disparity, you know, a few people, 1% or 0.1% of the population has become super, super rich. So the United States uh, uh, has to address those questions. Mm -hmm. right? Internationally, I can see a greater shift. Uh, United States wants to change the system, but the, the first thing is that United States probably has to negotiate new agreements, you know, a set of agreements uh, with China, right? because uh, that's uh, the elephants, the two elephants in the room, right? The two countries have to first agree on a set of rules in order for us to increase or to resume uh, those international organizations. Right? They're a bit suspicious about regionalism. You mentioned that you have, we have to be careful not to be exclusive. But we have been seeing that as being exclusive, right? The TPP was designed to exclude China. Everyone knows that, mm -hmm. right? Then, you know, United States and Europe 
uh, are negotiating uh, cross-border data, uh, what was that, uh, 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 cross-border movement of data. If uh, they reach agreement, then that's going to exclude China and other countries. So regionalism is so easily to be used as a tool to exclude certain countries. Uh, If we want to avoid this kind of fragmentation, parallel systems, uh, probably we still need to work toward kind of uh, uh, all-inclusive international system. Uh, In building that, the United States and China are the two most uh, critical players. Mm. Yeah. Would you like to respond to that, Professor? Because you mentioned like-minded countries working together, and I get that. It's easier. But if we really want to see true multilateralism playing out, where we can solve some of humanity's common challenges, uh, like Dean Yao was saying, perhaps regionalism may potentially lead to more fragmentation. How do we square that? Okay, let me, if I may... uh Slightly disagree with <laughs> Yang. Yang? <laughs> uh, uh, in in terms of your description of the situation, I think I I think it's uh, yes. I agree that the U.S. needs to look at its own uh, how to, to figure out their own problem. Mm. But what they should be doing is doing their homework domestically. <laughs> right now, uh, there's a lot of blaming. Right? It's mm. easier to blame your problems on China or on globalization. And I, but now with Biden, actually, he shifted to, okay, we have now an industrial policy to make America great again. Right. Uh, Trump was just saying, make America great again by <laughs> reducing deficit with other countries. But at least uh, under Biden, he has come up with uh, an industrial policy to, re- you know, because the problem is increasing productivity and innovation mm. uh, in the U.S. That's how you compete, right? right. <laughs> this is the normal situation. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, I think it's, even the industrial policy now is actually very mixed with security concerns. Mm-hmm, so right. what we haven't really mentioned, the fragmentation is happening because we are now having efficiency, having to be balanced with resilience mm-hmm. to shocks, mm-hmm. security concerns uh, of two, uh, you know supply chain dependency and concentration. And mm-hmm. then you are mixed up also with the US-China geopolitical situation. So unless you accommodate these uh, issues within the multilateral order, you will, you will continue to have this, this conflict. And uh, my prediction is that we will continue to see fragmentation. You will see continued concerns about this. It's being called de-risking. At least it's not decoupling anymore. It's de-risking. But nobody seems to have a good definition yeah. of how we should de-risk minimizing the cost on efficiency. You're going to end up with uh, less efficiency, higher cost, uh, and it will hurt the developing countries the most. This is is kind of the world we're going to. So I think what we have to be looking at is how do we minimize the cost? Because it's going to happen, right? So I I think what I'm recommending is not just regionalism. I think we have to do parallel. We have to do what we can to maintain the multilateral uh, rules and system because it is the best. It it's mm. still talking about openness, inclusiveness, transparency. Mm. The inclusiveness part 
for us is very important as you know uh, that was the benefit of us being part of the multilateral system i want to talk about china's economy and i want to ask you both this uh professor l- let me start with you because china has been a major contributor to the global economy um from 2013 to 2021 the world bank estimated that china's contribution uh average on an annual basis was nearly 40% Right now, people, of course, are looking at the Chinese economy. There might be some twists and turns when it comes to the recovery process. How do you see the future of China's economic contribution to global growth? Uh, I think even though there will be a slowdown in growth, it'll still be uh, significant, right? Uh, mm. And included in there are the other emerging developing economies, especially in East Asia. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that the growth between these between china and the rest of uh, asia has become very intertwined yeah. you know uh, china has been the largest investment and trading partner for southeast asia now for a, no- a number of years but asean i was told became china's largest trading partner mm-hmm. for the first time uh, uh, to last year i think so i think what we need to do is to make sure that uh, the growth between China and the rest of the region continues through the regional integration that I was uh, indicating. And second thing I would say is that I think China, uh, I think we, we think China will still continue to grow, but it's a normal process when you have grown at a very high pace that you, you, you're, you are experiencing structural changes. Yeah. Uh, and actually within those structural changes, uh, there is a kind of a maybe a, a complementary uh, kind of process that can help, that can benefit uh, and be opportunities also uh, for Southeast Asia. But I think a lot rests on what China will do domestically. Mm. Uh, and I think Din Yao is probably more competent to, <laughs> to comment on that. But, I, you know, everybody talks about the real estate issue, about the aging population uh, and how to revive domestic consumption. Uh, and, and so on. And I do think a lot has to do with kind of more domestic policies uh, mm-hmm. that will uh, raise the consumption versus savings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it does lead to the, the kind of uh, social programs that are effective, targeted uh, social protection mm-hmm. systems uh, that perhaps needs to be uh, increased in China so that you can get this uh, jump in consumption. Is China's savings rate too high, Dingyao? I mean, 45% is, I think, a relatively high level compared to uh, global levels. But are there behavioral changes perhaps across generations? Mm. So the younger generation perhaps may be spending a little bit more. At least the mindset is shifting more towards consumption. Uh, yes, yeah, so 45 is very high. Uh, not many countries... Uh, uh, take over China on that aspect. I think probably only Singapore. Mm-hmm. But Singapore has a kind of a forced saving scheme. Right? But before the financial crisis, China's saving rate was even higher. In 2008, it was 52%. Oh, wow. <laughs> so before the pandemic, China's saving rate came down quite a lot. Okay. So, I think uh, after structural changes, you know, it's natural to see the saving rate to come down. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, actually, I don't worry that much. I mean, on one hand, uh, China still needs investment, uh, not just uh, investment into infrastructure like this, 
But doesn't that show the consumption potential, I guess, of the Chinese market? Because if you have such a high savings rate, I mean, the U.S. is what, single digits? Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, China has a middle income population of about 400 million plus. That mm-hmm. number is expected to double to 800 million plus by 2035. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we expect then consumption to really rise in the next 10 to 15 uh, years? I, I don't worry about that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I said, before the pandemic, China's saving rate came down mm-hmm. quite significantly, uh, seven potential points. Uh, was not uh, among households. It was actually among corporations. Oh, okay. Corporate mm-hmm. savings increased mm-hmm. tremendously. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. As the share of mm-hmm. GDP, mm-hmm. household saving uh, was even lower mm-hmm. than before. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, saving was all about mm-hmm. the exports, the industrialization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And after the financial crisis, uh, uh, China's export growth slowed down. Ordinary mm. uh, people uh, got a larger share from output. Mm. Right? So income distribution became better. Mm. So ordinary people, of course, mm. consume more. So consumption as a share of GDP mm. went up. Mario, I want to get your take on ASEAN's role in all of this in the global economy. How does ASEAN, or Southeast Asia in general, how do you see ASEAN's role? in the global economy today, with all the perhaps external challenges that we see? Well, basically, you know, we just came, we just finished the ASEAN summit two weeks ago, so Mm. there was a lot of talk about your question. Uh, And okay, they lowered the uh, projection for uh, ASEAN to 4.6%, but by the way, that's still the highest growth for any region. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the lowering growth is because the external situation is really not very conducive. Yeah. R- real quick, Mari, for our audience. Yeah. So the IMF forecasts global growth this year will be 3%. Yeah. So Southeast Asia at 4.6%, quite robust yes, still. Yes, right. Please. Uh, and the highest amongst uh, all the regions in the world. Uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, Southeast Asia has the benefit uh, of already having uh, economic integration between ourselves as well as mm. with the, the East Asia region. So... For us, regional integration, economic integration, has been part of our DNA as the way we, we develop. And ASEAN as a region, right, 
uh, I think it's either the fourth or fifth uh, largest, if you, you take it as a region yeah, a yeah, four, yeah. Uh, in the world, and it's got a 650 million population. Uh, so I think we, we can be, uh, certainly for growth and investment prospects, uh, I think we are s- certainly in a, in a good space. Uh, and domestically, all the, the countries are doing uh, their part in the, in the reforms. Uh, second, I think we try very hard to position ourselves. So uh, this is why I, I, I know you had some skepticism about regional integration. <laughs> but I think a lot of these regional uh, pathways, somehow they will influence each other. You know, what, what CPP, CPTPP agreed on in digital will probably influence what RCEP will will mm. will adv- uh, advance towards in digital. Mm. Uh, what IPEF is discussing on resilient supply chain would probably influence how we would look at, how we would also try to influence what the U.S. is co- going to define as resilient supply chain so as not to hurt our supply chain that's in the region. Because yeah. the prediction is that supply chains are going to become more regional. Mm. What do you think China's contribution can be to Southeast Asia as it transitions itself? into a more carbon-neutral economy? I think in a, in a perfect world without all the conflicts, yes. <laughs> I was also doing some research on this, uh, you know, critical mineral supply issue and... Uh, Indonesia and has summer. a lot of Yes, I know, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it's... Um, I think I, I'm just worried that a lot of this fragmentation within the, the green supply chain, the carbon, mm. the decarbonization supply chain, uh, will actually increase the cost and the speed and the scale that we we should be doing uh, with decarbonization. But anyway, uh, the opportunity is there if we we make sure that uh, a lot of the uh, issues about the uh, supply chain in the green supply chain, they're using security issues, like the concentration of the supply of critical minerals, uh, as well as the concentration of the supply of solar panels, wind turbine, uh, EV batteries, it's very concentrated, right? So I would hope that the diver- in the diversification and the deconcentration that happens, that uh, this can actually be where Southeast Asia can be a partner, not just to China, but also mm. to the U.S. Mm. I mean, mm. uh, Indonesia, Philippines, and Vietnam, we do have minerals, and mm. Chinese investments are already in Indonesia to process these minerals, mm-hmm. and, and then eventually it can also go into the EV batteries, yeah. And, you know, also solar panels. Vietnam is already uh, producing solar mm. panels. So I, I think it should hopefully be through investment as well as diffusion of technology mm. that we can uh, also become, you can uh, deconcentrate, if you like, the, the production of these very critical uh, upstream uh, as well as downstream elements of the, of the, of the uh, decarbonization supply chain. Mm. which is going to be so important for not just for us, uh, for, not for China and for Southeast Asia, but for the rest of the world. Yeah. And I guess final question to both of you. We can't say globalization is dead, right? That is too extreme of, an ex- uh, of a statement. Perhaps we have to reimagine or improve what globalization looks like for, I, I guess, the benefit of mankind. How do we tackle these common challenges? If you could give advice to policymakers today in terms of how we can improve on globalization, Right. What would you say, Professor? Maybe. 
yeah. start with you. I, I, I don't like the word deglobalization, <laughs> and it, is, it, won't, it would, would not happen. I would say we need to reshape globalization and recognize, uh, you know, learn from what's happened. And I think domestically, we do have to have a better uh, handle on, on the kind of social policies that address inequality, lack of distribution, and so on. And that is about better targeted uh, social policies or, so, or compensation policies. Mm. And then uh, we need to continue the trade and investment and openness on the financial sector and capital flows and investment because that has that is still uh, that is still the way to go. But we have to recognize that there are all these security resilience concerns. So I would say policymakers domestically we need to be competitive increase our productivity, invest mm. in human capital, do the reforms, but we also need to play a role in shaping uh, the, the global economic order. That yeah. So I'm calling for middle powers for regions like ASEAN to yeah. really step forward to maintain the global economic order you know it's not it's it's not a, it's not broken there it needs to be updated it needs yeah. to be changed but we all need to play a role in that. Yeah. Dinyang, your thoughts on this? How do we reshape, reimagine, improve globalization? Uh, currently, I see a lot of sentiments uh, flowing around, right? sentiments, uh, dominant uh, rationality. Uh, I hope uh, that all the countries uh, will bring rationality back. Right? I think to the West, uh, it's uh, a strike that uh, the world is not converging particularly. Uh, so perhaps in the future, not just a short future, but a longer future, the West has to learn a way to coexist with countries with different political systems. And then the task for all the countries globally is to create a kind of a new world order that accompanies in different political systems. But the economically integrated world system. Mm. That's going to be really hard, but let's not uh, lose hope. Yeah. <laughs> I guess globalization in a more multipolar world, mm -hmm. it's going to be difficult. There will be challenges, but at least that sense of hope and optimism we have to maintain, right? So openness, inclusiveness, how do we build more communication and dialogue? That's mm -hmm. at least what we're trying to find here at the Bund Summit yes. uh, in Shanghai. All right, so thank you so much for joining us, Dean Yao Yang okay. and Professor Pangestu. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Michael Wong here at the Fifth Bund Summit in Shanghai. Thank you so much for joining us. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in.
Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.